part of the whole problem is that the neoclassical economists say, turn it all over to the market. The market is the only thing you need to make correct decisions. And that's just wrong. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to talk to someone who is an expert in the field of energy, who's been looking at uh, energy return on investment for several years now, is one of the probably the father of this field, the analysis of energy balances. And and what is energy return on investment? Well, it's an important uh, quantity which tells you uh, how much energy you have to put in to get energy out of a particular system. And it's a key um, figure of merit to determine whether or not your society is going to be flush with energy or energy poor. And this has important implications about uh, how society can survive or thrive. As always, if you enjoy listening to this show, I appreciate if you could hit like on your podcast app, uh, give me a share and chat about it with the friends and come join us at the Facebook group, The Rational View, if you have any questions or would like to chat with us. World-renowned professor emeritus Charles Hall has been a research scientist since 1970 and started teaching in 1972. His work is focused mainly on energy sources. As cheap, high-return energy sources start to decline, his analysis of the impacts of energy return on investment on society have gained prominence. He's interested in understanding the effects of peak oil and declining EROI on economic growth and possibilities and how that might play out in the developing world. Many of these issues come full circle to the limits to growth arguments that emerged in the 60s and 70s. Professor Hall is an AAAS fellow, a Fulbright fellow, Argentina, and was named one of the 100 Outstanding World Scientists of 2004. He's a recipient of the SUNY Chancellor's Award for Creative Research and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society for Biophysical Economics. His paper with Murphy and Balog, entitled, What is the Minimum EROI that a Sustainable Society Must Have, was featured as the 10th anniversary best paper published in the journal Energies. Professor Hall, welcome to The Rational View. Hi. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your extensive career and how you got interested in in energy and EROI? Um, Actually, I'm a biologist. Um... And I started out just as a kid being uh, obsessed with fish, fishing, water, anything in the water, um, snorkeling, mostly fishing, whatever. As long as it was water, it was fine with me. And um, and then when I was an undergraduate uh, at Colgate University, I... I discovered ecology. I mean, one guy came and, well, somebody said to me, what are you doing tomorrow afternoon? And I said, you know, I don't know, go fishing if I can. And he said, well, this this guy is coming and he's going to talk on ecology. And this was 1964. And I said, ecology, what's that? And he said, well, it's about swamps. You'll like it. (laughs) And um, 
So I came, and this guy was a graduate of our small college, and he um, was a professor at uh, North Carolina State University. Uh, his name is Art Cooper, and he was uh, studying energy flow out in the estuaries, the tidal lands of North Carolina. And he showed pictures of himself and his graduate students out there taking samples of fish and plants and so forth. And I was an English major at that time. And I said, I don't know what ecology is, but I'm going to become an ecologist <laughs> on that hour. Nice. And from that hour to this hour, my life has been a straight line. And it's been the same. So I'm always an ecologist, but the energy return on investment came from my work for my PhD. I got an undistinguished master's from Penn State on mayflies. And then I went and had this incredible experience uh, working with Howard Odom, uh, who was a great ecologist, and he was a systems ecologist, and he was interested in energy. Now, most ecology is focused on the species, but he was focused on ecosystems and energy flow through ecosystems and how organisms within ecosystems use that energy. And um, he suggested to me when a salmon biologist was visiting University of North Carolina, that I might be interested in looking at the energetics of salmon migration. And again, in that second, I knew what my PhD work was going to be. So I, uh, we've re written that up recently, but the, the whole story of how this came to pass. And so I went to uh, a beautiful creek in North Carolina called New Hope Creek in in Duke Forest, although I was at UNC, and uh, I I studied the movement of fish there for two and a half years, and every day, and I built a weir that could catch them going upstream or downstream, and I studied the productivity or the energy availability in different parts of the stream, and developed the concept, or developed the whole concept of energy return on investment that each fish that invested a calorie in the process of migration would uh, return at least five calories by being in more productive areas at times in their life when that was more important, etc. So that's all been written up and published long ago. And, well, what happened? How did I get into oil and stuff like that? Well, in 1981, I was a young professor uh, at Cornell University, and uh, I had a good undergraduate, very good undergraduate, Cutler Cleveland, and uh, he came to me and said he wanted to work on oil, and so we thought about the work I knew of, of M. King Hubbard, that had impressed me previously, and I said, let's redo that. And so we redid that, that analysis, Hubbard's analysis, from an energy perspective. And I can... You know, I've been working on that a lot for, you know, the next 50 years or so. And that's definitely how I, I came in contact with your work was through that 
energy return on investment analysis that you've been doing on energy sources for society. It's how a lot of people, uh, I'm sure, uh, get interested in this. Uh, and it's absolutely critical now that we focus, in my opinion, that we focus on EROI uh, to help us transition from fossil fuels to, to cleaner energies. So it's, 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 you know, it's been fun reading your papers and, and looking at the reviews that you've done and, and others uh, in this area. And that's how I, how I came to, to find you and, and decided to, to interview you and, and ask you about your work and, and, and learn a little bit more about where this came from. It's very... Incidentally, I've been approached by, by many uh, business people, corporate and people in energy companies and so forth, uh, who are dissatisfied with uh, the criteria that they're having to use for investments. Uh, it's called environmental, social, and governmental, and nobody knows what that means. So mm. they like uh, EROI as we apply it to different fuels because for them it's scientific and repeatable and explicit and other good things so which i agree yes so i mean what t tell me what you've learned from from doing this over the over the years what 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 is the most surprising thing or most interesting thing well the main thing i've learned is that, that uh, civilization and all these things that people attribute to technology and uh, human ingenuity and all these kinds of things is just mostly throwing more oil at the problem and We've, uh, in my lifetime, our use of energy has increased by a factor of eight. A factor of eight. You know, we have all these economic theories of the left and right, and the economists like to think, oh, it's because we use the, this theory or that theory that the economy has been good where it has, or that other people have, we've used somebody else's, uh, you know, the left blames the right and the right blames the left when things go wrong, but... Uh, almost all of these things are directly attributable to the availability of energy at that time. Wow. And so um, it's amazing how people like to attribute what's going on to humans where it's just Mother Nature, you know, yo-yoing us around. Um, and it will continue to be. And, and I guess what I fear most is that people will continue to blame political leaders uh, or their opposition or whatever fanatic group they either are or don't like or like or whatever, they attribute to them whatever's going on. And you can generally understand these things very clearly from understanding the energetics at the time. Well, let me just give you an example, you know. Sure. Margaret Thatcher was doing a terrible job and was very unpopular in England. And she was fighting with the coal miners and all this stuff. But then they, on her watch, they brought the North Sea oil on board. And all of a sudden, England was awash in oil, enough so they could export it. Hmm. And everybody says, oh, this... Margaret Thatcher's conservative perspective it how wonderful it's been for the economy of England. So therefore, you know, let's sign up on this conservative perspective. Hmm. Well, come on, you know, she, she was, she happened to be at the helm when, when uh, the oil was um, discovered. And that saved England's ass. 
Um, and they did well, but except now the oil's pretty much gone. And uh, England is having a bit of a tougher time and likely to have tougher yet. You're telling us that that EROI is linked to economic prosperity, basically. The, the fact that the economy has been growing is mainly because of energy, cheap energy. Cheap energy, you got it. And the economists have it all wrong because in their models, they think energy is not important because it's only 5% of GDP. Uh, and labor is, you know, 40% or whatever it is, much, much more. So labor must be more important because it's more money. But that's got it asked backwards, that, that the uh, energy is important not because we don't spend much money on it, but because we don't spend much money on it and get a huge punch from it, a huge economic punch. It's terrific. Ah, and okay. to give you another example, uh, during the, Donald Trump's first years, um, the price of oil in the United States because of this fracking, um, the price of oil was half the price as it was in, in Europe or had been in the Obama years. And so the economy was doing well. Of course it was doing well. It had cheap fuel. Hmm. And, uh, of course, you know, the right wanted to take credit for that and the left wanted to say something else and whatever it is. But, you know. So from from EROI analyses, I think we're able to use these things to determine, you know, which sources of power are good for society and which sources of power are bad. And I think that the political and uh, public discourse hasn't caught up to a lot of these things. I think some of them have been taken to heart, like the like ethanol from corn, for example, as a fuel. Oh no! In the United States, we're still forced to buy it. Ten percent of all the gasoline we buy in the U.S. is is this ethanol, which just dilutes the oil, and which takes which takes a joule or a calorie of fossil energy of oil or gas to make it because corn is energy intensive to grow and um, and then to distill it and even more that they don't count put it to put it in a gas tank. So it's what you say is true, but that doesn't mean that we are no longer doing it in the United States. We're because corn state senators tend to be turn over slowly and have a lot of power. We have a very strong agricultural uh representation in Congress. So we still have to do it, even though all we get, the net we get from that is um, is the erosion, because corn is a very erosive crop, hmm. and, and uh, well, subsidies from for farmers, which, you know, I can understand there's some virtue to that, but I, I just drove across the middle of the United States, and from from Nebraska to uh, Tennessee, all the fields from one edge to the other are just strictly plowed and planted with corn without a stick for a bird to sit on or hide under. Just terribly destructive to wildlife hmm. to have all of this corn. Um, and, and then everywhere you look, you'd see these distilleries, these big steel storage things and distilleries. And I'm thinking that the, the whole bloody economy is 
It's doing nothing. There's no net gain from it because we're using all this fossil fuel to grow all of this corn and make this alcohol. And the only way we get away with doing that or whoever gets away with it is because of the subsidies. Hmm. Uh, and any subsidy in money is a subsidy in fossil fuels. So yeah, because the energy, what is, it, what is the energy return on investment for ethanol from corn? Is it is it like one to one? Is it negative? About that, it's so close to one to one. You can't you can't really tell. I, you know, I have a paper. I'll send you the paper. Other people have come to the same conclusion. And you know, there's some small differences depending on whether you include the pig food you can get out of it or not. And but it's so close to one-to-one. -one. And, and you don't need one-to-one -to, -one to run the society. We, we guess that we have several papers on this. Uh, we have several papers indicated needs, you need something like 10-to-1, 12-to-1 to have anything like modern uh, American, including Canadian, uh, society. To have anything like the affluence that we have, you need to have high EROI fuels. That's interesting. I'd like to explore that a little bit. You you put out a paper, uh, a famous paper by, with Murphy and Balog, which established, was the first, I think it was the first attempt to establish a minimum EROI for a sustainable society. Can, yeah. can you describe your thesis to our listeners? Yeah, that, that was actually, it was a good idea, but it's slightly mislabeled because we didn't figure it out for running society. We just sort of figured out for what you would need to use um, a liter of fuel. How, in other words, we say if, if you're going to drive a truck, what do you need to get the oil out of the ground, to refine it, to distribute it to where you use it, and to make the infrastructure, the roads and bridges and stuff, mm. uh, that you need to do this. And, you know, be, because Steve Below really knew his stuff on this, we got – I think pretty good numbers on all this, and um, and concluded just to drive a truck was three to one. Now in a later paper we said, ah, but what happens if you want to put something in the truck? So if you want to grow corn or and put it in the truck, um, something you know economically useful, um, and that would we intelligent guesses figured would be around five to one. But then we thought, well, what about taking care of the families, feeding the families of the workers and, uh, in a sense, replacing the, the workers, just as we had figured out what it cost to replace the machinery as it wore out. And so we did this. How much to support the the families, and then to do um, health care and education <laughs> and uh, maybe some arts and so forth. And pretty soon we got up to 10 to 12 to 1 um, as an intelligent guess as to what we need to support anything like modern society. And, and 12 to 1, you know, that the main – you asked earlier one of the, what I had learned from this. The main thing I learned is that the EROI of our major fossil fuels is declining. The first thing I learned was how important it was for us to for oil and fossil fuels in our uh, history. And the second is that they're all declining. 
And this we found in our first paper in 1981, and then we looked at it much more quickly. Why, why are oil and fossil fuels declining in the energy that they return to society? Because we're using up the best stuff. You know, the geologists are no fools. They find the biggest uh, resources that are easiest or cheapest to recover. And, and most of our oil today, or better, more than half, comes from just 400 big fields, uh, many in the Middle East, of course, and, and we're just pumping them out. And as you pump them out, you, you, what's called the water cut increases. You have to spend more and more energy pumping up water that you just then try to get rid of, uh, hopefully in a non-polluting way. And, and so it's called depletion. And in EOI, in a certain sense, people say, oh, well, technology will, will take care of that. But that's not true. Technology is operating, and it does positive things. But EOI is a balance between depletion and technology and everywhere we look, the EROI of our fossil fuels is declining as we use up the best stuff. And in economics, they talked about it in 1830 with Ricardo. And I mean, it's a fundamental principle of economics that they don't talk about today. Basically, I think the conventional economics that we are teaching our young people is a house of cards. I would use stronger words, but it's not polite. But it begins with B, and the next letter is U. And so uh, I think that we're teaching young people a whole suite of fairy tales. Now, we have a, a whole different, sorry, it's backwards. It's called Energy and the Wealth of Nations, and an introduction to biophysical economics by myself and my colleague, Kent Klitgaard. Mm -hmm. And this has reviews conventional economics, discusses what's wrong with it, and gives the alternative, what we call biophysical economics. And the concept is simply this. The concept, I'm a natural scientist. I, I'm trained in physics and chemistry and biology and geology and meteorology and, you know, all that physical natural sciences. Economics as is conventionally taught, is a social science. Mm -hmm. it's, taught, it's taught only from the perspective of human wants and needs and the ability of markets to supply this. And it starts with markets, but, you know, where does stuff in the markets come from? It comes from the earth. It, it, it comes from energy used, applied to copper deposits, which are declining as we mine out the best and best copper and so forth. Uh, just to give you an example, we're, we're trying to figure out what would be the impact of going to electric automobiles at anything like the rate we're doing regular automobiles. Well, electric cars have about three times more copper in them uh, than does a conventional automobile. Mm -hmm. And so we're asking, so this is a biophysical question. If we are going to make a billion cars, as some people say, electric cars, and run them on wind turbines, which is a possibility, is there possibly enough copper to do that? Doesn't look very good at our first cut analysis. Really? Interesting. 
and, and you know, they're assuming, the economists assume, well, it's not enough copper will raise the price and some people will f find it. But, you know, as you keep raising the price, the grade go goes down and it takes more and more energy to get the next kilogram of copper. And if you're talking about all the elect all the copper you need for your wind turbines, plus all the copper you need for these internal uh, for these uh, electric cars, plus their charging stations and all the rest of it, it gets really scary. I mean, you know, no way in hell, actually, no way, as I can see. Then you have to do transmission from offshore offshore wind fields to the mainland and distribute all this electricity. You got the idea. I can see the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so your analysis uh, of what we need for society is 10, 10 to 1, 12 to 1 to support our, our current standard of living, I guess is what you would say. Is that is that a fair? Something like that. I'm pretty, yeah. pretty sure about that, yeah. Now, is this, we're talking about basic ERI, energy in, to energy out, or are we talking about um, energy out over energy in? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a ratio. Because there's, there's a lot of different EROIs. If you look in the literature, people have, have, have written there's extended EROI where you consider um, more things like uh, the transport of the fuel to the user um, as, as, a, as a cost. Um, but you're talking basically basic EROI in this. In this equation that you're looking at? I, I don't, I, I mean, some of these papers I think are really good. The, the people that are at, in London, uh, Brockway and his King, uh, Brockway and King did a paper I thought was good. Um, although I introduced the concept of extended EROI, or I think I call it, uh, Dave Murphy and I call it EROI POU, point of use. Yes. I wish that I hadn't, um, because EROI should be getting the energy from nature. And, and it's a separate question to ask what's the distribution and issues of quality and so forth. I, I mean, you've got to start with what's it cost to get it from nature? I think that's a critical question. Um, but, you know, I'm the one who brought it up in a paper in 2011, so uh, <laughs> I... It's okay, and you know I like very much the work that uh, Brockway does. I mean, his group at Leeds is really good. So, uh, okay, I'm not going to make a stink about that. Your your 2014 paper with uh, Lambert and Balo uh, shows what I would consider a famous graph of EROI from various energy sources, and you have hydro at 84 to one. Uh, you have nuclear at 14 to 1, wind at 19 to 1, solar at 10 to 1. Yeah. Did these analyses compare basic EROI or? Uh, yes, basic EROI at the, what we call the mine mouth or at the wellhead or the farm gate. At the edge of the entity that's getting the, winning the energy from nature, yes. Yes, they're all the same. Many of the um, solar and wind uh, papers that I've looked at uh, give themselves a, a quality factor improvement where they uh, multiply their energy by a factor of three to say that they're offsetting coal. 
that's not basic ERI. Obviously, it's a it's a they call it primary energy equivalent. I I, I accept that. I don't have a problem with that. It's sort of. First of all, you have to state it clearly, which they often do not. But, you know, there's some people who do this well. Marco Rauge, for example, does it well, generally. Uh, you, but you have to be very explicit that you're doing this. And you also have to make some further adjustments because it only works for electricity that's being used for these high-quality functions. If you're using energy, electricity to run a motor, which is more efficient than an internal combustion engine, then, the, then it's electricity that's using its quality or to run a computer or, or a light or something like that. Um, but if you're using uh, electricity for resistance heating to heat a room or heat water, <laughs> which it, I don't know what a 20 or 30% of all electricity is used to do that. Well, you shouldn't give it a quality function to do a low quality job. It's a little, it's a little tricky, but it gets a lot trickier if you're talking about what happens if you penetrate a lot more electricity, uh, meaning if, if the wind turbine or photovoltaic energy becomes 30 or 50 or God knows 100% of society, then you're using the electricity mostly for things that its quality is not important and, and sometimes even not useful, such as a certain metallurgical, uh, I mean, depending what it is, but certain metallurgical uses and so forth. To assess this properly, you have to do a much more comprehensive assessment. But the, the most interesting work, in my opinion, that has been done on this is by a Spaniard named uh, Capellan Perez and, and his colleagues uh, at the University of Valladolid. I don't know exactly how to say it in Spain. And it's really good because he says if you make a transformation to 50 or 100 uh, percent renewables, then the EROI will drop down as low in his models, which I can't find any fault with, to four to one or even two to one because of a number of things. The inherently lower EROI of many of these solar things, uh, the increasing energy intensity of things like copper as you use more and more of it. And what's perhaps most important is that the energy invested in renewable has to be upfront. So during the time period that you're investing, you're building the infrastructure of wind turbines or whatever, your energy use is enormous. Yes. Uh, well, I'll send you the paper, and this can be made available. You know, any of your listeners, if they want, my email is chall, C-H-A-L-L, at esf.edu, chall at esf.edu. And if, you're, uh, if you don't write me an enormous email, I'd be very happy to, to answer your questions. Uh, excellent. That, that's great. Are you on on the internet much? Do you have a, a Facebook presence? Barely. Uh, I have lots of. I'm trying to organize that now uh, in this new institute we have. Oh, okay. So that it's more accessible than it is. But uh, 
If you go to this thing, www.bpeinstitute, all one word, bpeinstitute.org, then you can get a link to a lot of stuff. That sounds very interesting. Well, we're, you know, go buy my book. <laughs> there we go. There we go. It's all in here. And that's Ener Energy and the Wealth of Nations? Energy and the Wealth of Nations. You know, that's a pun on Adam Smith. The Wealth of Nations, the first economist, Adam Smith, who, who, by the way, was pretty close to a biophysical economist himself, as was Ricardo and even Karl Marx, if you pushed them, um, they understood the importance of energy, uh, as did the people who came from before them. It was the people, Menjes and, and uh, Jevons and stuff, who came up with this idea of um marginal economics, in my opinion, started the great downhill journey of conventional economics. Before I go away from this this um, EROI of, of various power sources, you made a very important point there. As we as renewables become Perez says as renewables become a higher proportion of our grid, you now have to stop using the primary energy equivalent EROI and degrade back to the basic EROI for these things, which effectively divides by three those numbers that you presented originally. And so the wind would go down to six to one and the solar would go down to three to one effectively. Yeah. Uh, there's a paper by DuPont uh, gives somewhat lower numbers because I think she does a more comprehensive analysis than the original numbers by Kubitschewski that were roughly 20 to 1, I thought the ROI from wind was getting more and more because as you make them higher, you intercept more wind. The wind goes up exponentially as you, as you go up in elevation. But right. according to DuPont, that doesn't seem to be as important as I thought. Oh, interesting. I'll have to take a look at that too. Yeah, you know, basically, I got to tell you, basically, it's criminal. The Department of U.S. Department of Energy or the Canadian Department of whatever you have up there, um, they ought to be in the business of funding large scale national labs or programs of the highest integrity. And that's really important. The highest integrity and objectivity to be examining the stuff and mostly to maintain the data. We In the United States, we don't even maintain the data anymore. It's, so you can't make EROI evaluations. Canadians, I don't know, Statistics Canada, some good things about it, and you guys do what's called I.O. analysis, and, and that's good. And we don't do that. And, you know, we should be having 100 uh, or 1,000 PhDs studying this stuff. And, and you know, they're going to find some things wrong with our our preliminary estimates, I don't think very wrong, and they, but you need to have it out there. You need to have it peer reviewed. You have to have a big problem increasingly in science is people are using science to defend positions rather than to test hypotheses. Mm. Science is not meant to defend a position. Science is meant to test hypotheses. And so there's all kinds of things that are essentially criminal, how our governments are not taking the ball in. Part of the whole problem is that the 
Neoclassical economists say, turn it all over to the market. The market is the only thing you need to make correct decisions. And that's just wrong. And so we, the market can't look forward. The market can't look to the future of copper. It can't look to the future of petroleum. You know, I'm working with a guy named, a Frenchman named John Larere, who knows more about oil than anybody else. And we're trying to write a paper on the future of oil. And it seems pretty clear that we really have only about half as much oil as the official estimates from uh, the U.S. Energy Information Agency or the other things are. And, And the reasons why are very clear. The world is being told the fantasy. We may have only 10 or 15 years of abundant oil left. And by abundant, I mean less than ten dollars a gallon. And and I mean that's good for the environment, I guess, in some ways, uh, knowing the uh, the CO two concentration in the atmosphere. Well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, it would be a disaster. What what would a society look like with uh, a power source of EROI of five or or three? What what, what does that society look like? England in fifteen hundred. Kerry King, my colleague Kerry King, who thinks about this in many good ways, has um, written a paper in 2015 um, about, he took some data on the economy of England um, from 1300s till 1750, about somewhere between a third and a half of all economic activity was to get the fuel, uh, that, that is the firewood, the fodder, and the, and the food, because human labor was a lot of the work back then, about a third to a half of all the economic activity was used to get the energy to run that section of the economy plus the other half. Hmm. Then, with the discovery of coal, which is so much more concentrated than than grass or or wood, mm-hmm. um, in the 1750s it started to go up to uh, or down to only 25 percent or so of the economy was used to get the energy to run that section of the economy plus the other 75 percent. And then with oil, it went down to somewhere between 5 and 10%, and we became rich. The world is enormously rich now, uh, very poorly distributed, you know, very poorly distributed, but the world is so rich compared to England in 1500. Now, of course, we've got a problem in that, you know, we've got uh, 20 or whatever times more people. I think the problems we don't understand very well are social. Uh, because when when things get tight, when economics gets tight, then, uh, as I said, people will blame other political groups. They'll look for crazy ideas from the left and the right to try to get us back to the good old days. Well, excuse me, the good old days are gone. And we've used up that oil, and now we're going to have to adapt. If we make a transition to wind turbines and photovoltaics, we can do it. But my guess is we'll be a lot poorer. Now, is that wrong? Is that bad? Well, look at Europe now. I mean, good Lord, 
in the future, will we be able to rebuild these huge areas that are destroyed by floods? Uh, that's a huge energy investment to, and I look at the waste of all of those splinters of uh, what used to be buildings and stuff, uh, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and all those cars that are destroyed and stuff. Well, you know, will we even be able to replace that wealth? So these these are questions that nobody nobody is talking about. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about any restriction uh, on our economic well-being. Every generation is supposed to be better off than it was in the past. Well, we we could when we were growing exponentially with our use of oil. But uh, doing it now is not easy at all. And it's not just that the oil is uh, the energy return on investment for oil and, and coal and whatever is, is going way down. is that... Uh, Everything else is requiring more energy. Uh, agriculture, in some respects, uh, uh, certainly getting metals and uh, uh, maintaining healthy water supplies. We could on and on. The one thing we haven't talked about yet is nuclear, and that's something that I'm I've looked into, and I believe based on the numbers and the science that. You know, you you stated that it was fourteen to one in an ERY based on earlier data, um, meta analysis of I think Lenzen Lenzen's work in two thousand eight, uh, where he went through a whole bunch of uh, papers and and got all the ERI estimates from the seventies and eighties and nineties and two thousands and threw them all together to get an average. And it's again, many of the analyses are used for people who are advocates one way or the other as opposed to people who are testing hypotheses. But anyway, um, I don't know what it is, but, you know, the price of a, a new nuclear plant in the United States has increased dramatically. And and if that price is reflecting in some way, as I believe it is, EROI, um, I don't know what it is. But, you know, my guess is, okay, nuclear is probably... 5 to 15 to 1, uh, it's not bad. There's all kinds of new ideas about smaller units. Uh, I mean, the thing, two things worry me, safety a little bit. M- most of the accidents have been stupid. Like the Japanese, I can't believe it, they, where the word tsunami comes from, didn't put their backup generators on the roof. Mm-hmm. So the backup generators got hit by the, the, the tsunami. It's crazy. And all kinds of just stupid things. And not, not that I'm implying Japanese engineers are stupid. They're among the best in the world. But this particular case, uh, in every one of the big accidents that's taken place, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, um, and in Japan, uh, it's been a different issue that's caused the problem. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to predict. I mean, there's thorium reactors, which are inherently safe. You can't make bombs from them. You know, we, we have people, a lot of people don't know this. We tried thorium back at Oak Ridge you know, a long time ago, and they had some huge engineering problems. And uh, there's now talk about smaller units that you can bury in the ground, and if everything goes wrong, you can walk away from them, and, and the earth can dissipate the heat. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about making a difference with nuclear, you've got to talk about doing it around the world, 
and to have nuclear technology taught around the world with all of these conflicting political things, that's really scary to me. And it doesn't have to be a nuclear bomb, you know, just somebody gets some plutonium and puts it in a in a boat and sails it into a big harbor and blows it up with uh, TNT or ammonium nitrate. And, uh, you know, that's that would be really nasty. And once you have a really big nuclear accident, people will call for shutting it down. And, you know, it's, then we wasted that huge amount of energy we put into building the nuclear. So I think we should probably go with uh, wind turbines and photovoltaics carefully. Uh, the main thing I think we need to do is uh, is restrict growth, restrict growth of human population, which is happening in some places as we give women alternatives with what to do with their lives besides being barefoot and pregnant. And uh, I think it's important to have, um, I, I don't think we can have indefinite economic growth. There are people who call Herman Daly long ago, steady state economy and People who call for degrowth, and I'm all for all of them, but I think that uh, it, it's going to happen whatever you plan. That, that I think there will be increasingly constrictions in what humans can do economically as we use up the best resources. Um, and that, I mean, you know, people don't understand it. The fracking saved the United States' ass and made a huge difference by all the oil that we produce from fracking. But it's only two decades, and, and now we've used up all the best fracking sites. And they're trying to do infield drilling and other crazy things, and it's just not working. Yeah, fracking also leaks methane into the atmosphere, and which exacerbates the CO2 impact of the burning of the carbon. But looking at the nuclear, you had a 14 to 1 estimate from your paper, and someone went back and reanalyzed Lenzen's work and said, well, okay, 14 to 1 seems low. All of the analyses from the 70s and 80s, if you average them, are less than 10 in terms of the ROI. Yeah. If you average the ones after the 80s, it's 30 to 1 because of the new processes that they have for fuel uh, enrichment. Are they using the 3 to 1 multiplier? No, no, not for nuclear. It's a thermal source, obviously. So 30 to 1 is at the primary energy, or at the basic energy level. I don't know. I, I'm not in a position to evaluate that, and you may be right. And so, but you got to remember that ERI is, ERI is an important, but not the only criteria to make a decision amongst different things. I, I, I am, have, officially have no position pro or anti-nuclear. I'm open to that. I was enthusiastic about nuclear for a long time, but the proliferation thing is scary to me. Mm. I've worked at uh, Brookhaven National Lab and Oak Ridge National Lab. I've worked at nuclear labs. I'm pretty familiar with all the technology and stuff. And I've never worried about working at a lab full of radioactive materials. It's just because it can be well managed. But I don't like the idea of proliferation. Mm. Good Lord, all the, all the things that are stored in Russia and the United States on the top of missiles, that's, oh my God. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a bad place to put that stuff on the top of missiles. It definitely should be in a, in a reactor vessel, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of, thinking of re, 
purposing the nuclear warheads to running nuclear reactors. I'm all for that. That's a good idea. But looking at the um, the situation, we have, uh, I guess, a choice of going back to an EROI of 5 to 1 or maintaining an EROI of 20, 30 to 1 with nuclear. And I think a lot of people are, are struggling with that choice. Uh, there's the politics of, of where you need to go um, to, to decouple this. Obviously, people have worries, as you say, about proliferation. People are scared about, you know, nuclear spills or radiation getting into the environment. But in my opinion, looking at it, I've, you know, we've seen Chernobyl, you know, the worst possible accident you can have with a nuclear uh, reactor and one of these old designs. And it's now a, a nature reserve. Um, very few people have been killed by these nuclear accidents. You, you know, Greenpeace will tell you millions of people. That's true. And when we ran nuclear plants in the United States, for every nuclear plant, let's see, for every every year you ran a nuclear plant, a thousand megawatt nuclear plant, instead of a thousand watt coal plant, which was basically the choice for a long time, mm-hmm. you, you, about 10 people were not killed. There were uh, five or six people not killed by emphysema. Uh, four people not killed in the coal mines and one person not killed at the railroad crossing or something. I mean, wow. and these were good numbers mm-hmm. for the time. Is there um, an additional cost that we should be considering when comparing power sources for um, providing on-demand power versus intermittent power? Oh, yeah. I mean, as people in California, I've spent some time talking with the guy who designs the systems for distributing power in uh, California, and, and they're going bonkers because they built so much uh, photovoltaic that they get these huge peaks in the middle of the day, and you, and then it drops off to zero by six when power demand is greatest. Mm. So you have to go from an oversupply at noon from the PVs to no power from solar at all. So you've got to have something you can ramp up as that power supply. And it's so much electricity coming in from PV in the middle of the day that it's melting transformers and causing all kinds of problems. Mm. The net effect of which is that, that California is importing, according to this guy, is importing all kinds of really dirty electricity from Mexico hmm. made with coal or dirty oil. Um, and they're probably putting in the PVs has caused all kinds of environmental uh, problems that are not, not dealt with very well uh, in their regulations or their evaluations. So there you have it. Yeah, and... And the wind, you know, when we looked at wind turbines in upstate New York, where I used to live, there'd be two weeks every summer when the wind didn't blow a whiff. And, and, and what do you do? Now, the best thing you can do is to store water when the wind's blowing and then let the water go. Pumped hydro storage. But yeah. Here in Montana, I live in Montana now, we used to work on uh, the impacts of greatly changing water discharge levels on the bugs the insects and the fish, 
in the Montana rivers, and it was a pretty serious problem. Hmm. So uh, there's all kinds of issues that you need to deal with here. There seems to be more people breaking dams than building dams right now to, you know, free fish, salmon spawning grounds and that sort of thing, right? Oh, yeah, to get the fish back. Yeah, and I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Remember, I started studying fish. <laughs> you remain an environmentalist. I remain an environmentalist. Uh, I'm all for. I'm all for oil. Actually, I think oil is a terrific fuel, but we have to use it wisely and slowly. And everything we use to accelerate the economy is accelerating our depletion of oil. And uh, so I'm running for president. Please vote for me. And I want to restrict the uh, economy, and uh, I want to have 10% less wealth next year so that your children will have some. And, and the stupidest thing is we're using natural gas when we could be using coal to make electricity. And our grandchildren probably, well, okay, our grandchildren probably be really angry at us for having used this natural gas, which they'll be desperate for, to make fertilizer. That's how you make nitrogen fertilizer from natural gas. And we're going to use it up just to make electricity when they're going to need it to eat. Well, that's not, so in a certain sense, I'm opposed to, to, to replacing coal with natural gas. At least I want to think about the whole system. I'm a systems was trained as a systems biologist, a systems ecologist, trained to try to think about the whole thing, and we're not, we're just single issue, like you, you're single issue nuclear. we got to get you off that wagon. <laughs> and so I apologize if I've insulted you, but anyway, I think that's, uh, we have to bring systems thinking and thorough, good, objective energy analysis into the, into the fold and, and you know we can do it I could do it I could train good people to do that in you know three or five years uh, but we're not even training them anymore we don't have young people when I'm dead and the John Day's dead and a few of us are dead there not going to be too many replacements I think I prefer the the trade with the the proliferation risk and the 30 to 1 EOI to the England in the 1500s but that's the, the choice that we're forced with, forced to make, I think, is, is do we want to take these risks? Maybe. Well, I think we're, we're getting to the end of our time slot here. Uh, so I think we're going to wrap this up. Okay. But I really appreciate you coming to chat with us on The Rational View. And I love talking with you. A lot of interesting stories and, and, and great to, to hear your perspective on these things. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And uh, hope lots of people listen to this. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.